Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It is wonderful to have you here. This evening we'll be continuing with To the Lighthouse. But before that, let's focus on calming our minds and bodies. Take a few deep breaths on your own before finding a more natural rhythm of breathing. Think about where you notice the breath the most. Is it when it enters your nose, the cooler air coming in, the slightly warmer air sweeping out? Or maybe it's in the rise and fall of your chest. Perhaps it's as your belly expands and releases while you breathe in and out. In and out. Wherever it's most noticeable for you, rest your attention there. And each time your mind wanders, bring it back to this place. When you're ready, feel free to focus on the sound of my voice while I recap the last episode. Last time, Mrs. Ramsey had Rose helping her choose her jewellery for dinner, which was a nightly custom between the two. Mrs. Ramsey was getting increasingly annoyed that Nancy, Paul and Minta were going to be late for the meal. They were having a special menu in honour of them finally getting William Banks to eat with them, and it could not be put on hold. On her way downstairs, she heard the sheepish latecomers return, and slowly, slowly, everyone gathered around the table, with Mrs. Ramsay determining where people should sit, being sure to put William beside herself. Lily was opposite Mr. Tansley. At some point previously, he had told her that women couldn't write and that women couldn't paint, and his words still stung. He was increasingly tense as nobody was talking to him, and he could tell that people didn't like him. He wanted Mrs. Ramsay's attention, but she was absorbed in conversation with William, who was embarrassed to realise would rather have been anywhere else. Mrs. Ramsay then eyed her husband, who was scowling across the table because Mr. Carmichael had requested more soup, which was, in turn, holding up the main course. 
this began a silent conversation of various looks between husband and wife, not unnoticed by their children. And that's where we pick up tonight, with Mrs. Ramsey asking Rose and Roger to fetch the candles in the hope they wouldn't comment on their father's face. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 1 The Window Chapter 17 Continued Why could he never conceal his feelings, Mrs. Ramsay wondered, and she wondered if Augustus Carmichael had noticed. Perhaps he had, perhaps he had not. She could not help respecting the composure with which he sat there, drinking his soup. If he wanted soup, he asked for soup. Whether people laughed at him or were angry with him, he was the same. He did not like her, she knew that, but partly for that very reason she respected him, and looking at him drinking the soup, very large and calm in the failing light, and monumental and contemplative, she wondered what he did feel then, and why he was always content and dignified and she thought how devoted he was to Andrew and would call him into his room, and Andrew said, show him things. And there he would lie all day long on the lawn, brooding presumably over his poetry, till he reminded one of a cat watching birds. And then he clapped his paws together when he had found the word, and her husband said, Poor old Augustus, he is a true poet, which was high praise from her husband. Now eight candles were stood down the table, and after the first soup, the flames stood upright and drew with them into visibility the long table entire, and in the middle a yellow and purple dish of fruit. What had she done with it, Mrs. Ramsay wondered, for Rose's arrangement of the grapes and pears, of the pink-lined shell, of the bananas, made her think of a trophy fetched from the bottom of the sea, of Neptune's banquet, of the bunch that hangs with the vine leaves over the shoulder of Bacchus in some picture, among the leopard skins and the torches lolloping red and gold. Thus brought up suddenly into the light, it seemed possessed of great size and depth. It was like a world in which one could take one's staff and climb hills, she thought, and go down into valleys. And to her pleasure, for it brought them into sympathy momentarily, she saw that Augustus, too, feasted his eyes on the same plate of fruit, plunged in 
broke off a bloom there, a tassel here, and returned after feasting to his hive. That was his way of looking different from hers, but looking together united them. Now all the candles were lit up, and the faces on both sides of the table were brought nearer by the candlelight and composed, as they had not been in the twilight, into a party round a table, for the night was now shut off by panes of glass, which, far from giving any accurate view of the outside world, rippled it so strangely that here inside the room seemed to be order and dry land. There, outside, a reflection in which things waved and vanished waterily. Some change at once went through them all, as if this had really happened, and they were all conscious of making a party together in a hollow, on an island, had their common cause against that fluidity out there. Mrs. Ramsey, who had been uneasy waiting for Paul and Minta to come in, and unable, she felt, to settle to things, now felt her uneasiness changed to expectation. For now they must come, and Lily Briscoe, trying to analyze the cause of the sudden exhilaration, compared it with that moment on the tennis lawn, when solidity suddenly vanished and such vast spaces lay between them. And now the same effect was got by the many candles in the sparely furnished room, and the uncurtained windows, and the bright, mask-like look of faces seen by candlelight. Some weight was taken off them. Anything might happen, she felt. They must come now, Mrs. Ramsay thought, looking at the door. And at that instant, Minta Doyle, Paul Rayleigh, and a maid carrying a great dish in her hands came in together. They were awfully late. They were horribly late, Minta said, as they found their way to different ends of the table. I lost my brooch, my grandmother's brooch said Minta, with a sound of lamentation in her voice and a suffusion in her large brown eyes, looking down, looking up, as she sat by Mr. Ramsay, which roused his chivalry so that he bantered her. How could she be such a goose, he asked, as to scramble about the rocks in jewels? She was by way of being terrified of him. He was so fearfully clever and the first night when she had sat by him and he had talked about George Eliot, she'd been really frightened, for she had left the third volume of Middlemarch in the train. She never knew what happened in the end. But afterwards, she got on perfectly and made herself out even more ignorant than she was because he liked telling her she was a fool. And so tonight, directly... He laughed at her. She was not frightened. Besides, she knew directly she came into the room that the miracle had happened. She wore her golden haze. 
Sometimes she had it, sometimes not. She never knew why it came or why it went, or if she had it until she came into the room, and then she knew instantly by the way some man looked at her. Yes, tonight she had it, tremendously. She knew that by the way Mr. Ramsey told her not to be a fool. She sat beside him, smiling. It must have happened then, thought Mrs. Ramsey. They are engaged. And for a moment, she felt what she had never expected to feel again. Jealousy. For he, her husband, felt it too. Minter's glow. He liked these girls, these golden reddish girls, with something flying, something a little wild and harem scarum about them, who didn't scrape their hair off, weren't, as he said about poor Lily Briscoe, skimpy. There was some quality which she herself had not, some luster, some richness which attracted him amused him, led him to make favourites of girls like Minta. They might cut his hair from him, clat him watch chains, or interrupt him at his work, hailing him, she heard them. Come along, Mr. Ramsay, it's our turn to beat them now. And out he came to play tennis. But indeed she was not jealous, only now and then, when she made herself look in the glass, a little resentful that she had grown old, perhaps, by her own fault. The bill for the greenhouse and all the rest of it. She was grateful to them for laughing at him. How many pipes have you smoked today, Mr. Ramsay, and so on, till he seemed a young man, a man very attractive to women, not burdened, not weighted down with the greatness of his labours and the sorrows of the world and his fame or his failure. But again as she had first known him, gaunt but gallant, helping her out of a boat, she remembered, with delightful ways like that. She looked at him, and he looked astonishingly young, teasing Minter. For herself, put it down there, she said, helping the Swiss girl to place gently before her the huge brown pot in which was the bouffe en daube. For her own part, she liked her fools. Paul must sit by her. She had kept a place for him. Really, she sometimes thought she liked the fools the best. They did not bother one with their dissertations. How much they missed, after all, these very clever men. How dried up they did become, to be sure. There was something, she thought as he sat down, very charming about Paul. His manners were delightful to her, and his sharp, cut nose, and his bright blue eyes. He was so considerate. Would he tell her, now that they were all talking again, what had happened? We went back to look for Minter's brooch, he said, sitting down by her. We. That was enough. 
She knew from the effort, the rise in his voice, to surmount a difficult word that it was the first time he had said we. We did this. We did that. They'll say that all their lives, she thought. And an exquisite scent of olives and oil and juice rose from the great brown dish as Martha, with a little flourish, took the cover off. The cook had spent three days over that dish. She must take great care, Mrs. Ramsay thought, diving into the soft mass to choose a specially tender piece for William Banks. And she peered into the dish with its shiny walls and its confusion of savory brown and yellow meats and its bay leaves and its wine and thought, this will celebrate the occasion. Curious scents rising in her, at once freakish and tender, celebrating a festival as if two emotions were called up in her, one profound for what could be more serious than the love of a man for a woman? What more commanding, more impressive, bearing in its bosom the seeds of death? At the same time, these lovers, these people entering into illusion, glittering-eyed, must be danced around with mockery, decorated with garlands. It is a triumph, said Mr. Banks laying his knife down for a moment. He had eaten attentively. It was rich. It was tender. It was perfectly cooked. How did she manage these things in the depths of the country, he asked her. She was a wonderful woman. All his love, all his reverence had returned, and she knew it. It is a French recipe of my grandmother's, said Mrs. Ramsay speaking with a ring of great pleasure in her voice. Of course it was French. What passes for cookery in England is an abomination, they agreed. It is putting cabbages in water. It is roasting meat till it is like leather. It is cutting off the delicious skins of vegetables. In which, said Mr. Banks, all the virtue of the vegetable is contained... And the waste, said Mrs. Ramsay. A whole French family could live on what English cooks throw away. Spurred on by her sense that William's affection had come back to her, and that everything was all right again, and that her suspense was over, and that now she was free both to triumph and to mock, she laughed, she gesticulated, till Lily thought, How childlike, how absurd she was, sitting up there with all her beauty opened again in her, talking about the skins of vegetables. There was something frightening about her. She was irresistible. Always she got her own way in the end, Lily thought. Now she had brought this off. Paula Minter, one might suppose, were engaged. Mr. Banks was dining here. She put a spell on them all, by wishing, so simply, so directly. And Lily contrasted that abundance with her own poverty of spirit, 
and supposed that it was partly that belief, for her face was all lit up. Without looking young, she looked radiant. In this strange, this terrifying thing which made Paul Rayleigh sitting at her side all of a tremor, yet abstract, absorbed, silent. Mrs. Ramsay, Lily felt, as she talked about the skins of vegetables, exalted that, worshipped that, held her hands over it to warm them, to protect it, and yet, having brought it all about, somehow laughed, led her victims, Lily felt, to the altar. It came over her, too, now, the emotion, the vibration of love. How inconspicuous she felt herself by Paul's side. He, glowing, burning, she aloof, satirical, he bound for adventure, she moored to the shore, he launched, incautious, she solitary, left out, and ready to implore a share if it were a disaster in his disaster, she said shyly, when did Minta lose her brooch? He smiled, the most exquisite smile, veiled by memory, tinged by dreams. He shook his head. On the beach, he said. I'm going to find it, he said. I'm getting up early. This being kept secret from Minta, he lowered his voice and turned his eyes to where she sat, laughing beside Mr. Ramsay. Lily wanted to protest violently and outrageously her desire to help him, envisaging how in the dawn on the beach she would be the one to pounce on the brooch, half hidden by some stone, and thus herself be included among the sailors and adventurers. But what did he reply to her offer? She actually said with an emotion that she seldom let appear, Let me come with you. And he laughed. He meant yes or no, either, perhaps. But it was not his meaning. It was the odd chuckle he gave, as if he had said, throw yourself over the cliff if you like, I don't care. He turned on her cheek the heat of love. It's horror. It's cruelty. It's unscrupulosity. It scorched her, and Lily, looking at Minta, being charming to Mr. Ramsay at the other end of the table, flinched for her, exposed to these fangs, and was thankful. For at any rate, she said to herself, catching sight of the salt cellar on the pattern, she need not marry, thank heaven. She need not undergo that degradation. She was saved from that dilution. She would move the tree rather more to the middle. Such was the complexity of things, for what happened to her, especially staying with the Ramses, was to be made to feel violently too 
opposite things at the same time. That's what you feel was one. That's what I feel was the other. And then they fought together in her mind, as now. It is so beautiful, so exciting, this love, that I tremble on the verge of it and offer quite out of my own habit to look for a brooch on a beach. Also, it is the stupidest, most barbaric of human passions and turns a nice young man with a profile like a gem's Paul's was exquisite, into a bully with a crowbar. He was swaggering, he was insolent, in the Mile End Road. Yet, she said to herself, from the dawn of time, odes have been sung to love. Wreaths heaped and roses. And if you asked nine people out of ten, they would say they wanted nothing but this. Love while the women, judged from her own experience, would all the time be feeling. This is not what we want. There is nothing more tedious, puerile and inhumane than this. Yet it is also beautiful and necessary. Well then, well then, she asked, somehow expecting the others to go on with the argument as if in an argument like this, one threw one's own little bolt, which fell short, obviously, and left the others to carry it on. So she listened again to what they were saying, in case they should throw any light upon the question of love. Then, said Mr. Banks, there is that liquid the English call coffee. Oh, coffee, said Mrs. Ramsay but it was much rather a question. She was thoroughly roused, Lily could see, and talked very emphatically, of real butter and clean milk. Speaking with warmth and eloquence, she described the iniquity of the English dairy system and in what state milk was delivered at the door and was about to prove her charges, for she had gone into the matter, when all round the table beginning with Andrew in the middle, like a fire leaping from tuft to tuft of furs. Her children laughed. Her husband laughed. She was laughed at. Fire encircled and forced to veil her crest, dismount her batteries, and only retaliate by displaying the raillery and ridicule of the table to Mr. Banks as an example of what one suffered if one attacked the prejudices of the British public. Purposely, however, for she had it on her mind that Lily, who had helped her with Mr. Tansley, was out of things, she exempted her from the rest and said, Lily anyhow agrees with me, and so drew her in, a little fluttered, a little startled, for she was thinking about love. They were both out of things, Mrs. Ramsay had been thinking, both Lily and Charles Tansley. Both suffered from the glow of the other two. He, it was clear, felt himself utterly in the cold. 
No woman would look at him with Paul Rayleigh in the room. Poor fellow. Still, he had his dissertation, the influence of somebody upon something. He could care for himself. With Lily, it was different. She faded under Minter's glow, became more inconspicuous than ever in her little grey dress, with her little puckered face and her little eyes. Everything about her was so small. Yet, thought Mrs. Ramsay, comparing her with Minter, as she claimed her help, for Lily should bear out, she talked no more about her diaries than her husband did about his boots. He would talk by the hour about his boots. Of the two, Lily at forty will be the better. There was in Lily a thread of something, a flare of something, something of her own which Mrs. Ramsay liked very much indeed, but no man would, she feared. Obviously not, unless it were a much older man, like William Banks, then he cared, well, Mrs. Ramsay sometimes thought that he cared, since his wife's death, perhaps for her. He was not in love, of course. It was one of those unclassified affections, of which there are so many. Oh, but nonsense, she thought. William must marry Lily. They have so many things in common. Lily is so fond of flowers. They are both cold and aloof and rather self-sufficing. She must arrange for them to take a long walk together. Foolishly, she had set them opposite each other. That could be remedied tomorrow. If it were fine, they should go for a picnic. Everything seemed possible. Everything seemed right. Just now... But this cannot last, she thought, disassociating herself from the moment while they were talking about boots. Just now, she had reached security. She hovered like a hawk suspended, like a flag floated in an element of joy which filled every nerve of her body, fully and sweetly, not noisily, solemnly, rather. For it arose, she thought, looking at them all eating there, from her husband and children and friends, all of which rising in this profound stillness. She was helping William Banks to one very small piece more and peered into the depths of the earthenware pot. Seemed now for no special reason to stay there like a smoke, like a fume rising upwards holding them safe together. Nothing need be said. Nothing could be said. There it was, all round them. It partook, she found, carefully helping Mr. Banks to a specially tender piece of eternity, as she had already felt about something different once before that afternoon. There is a coherence in things, a stability. Something, she meant, is immune from change and shines out. She glanced at the window 
with its ripple of reflected light, in the face of the flowing, the fleeting, the spectrum, like a ruby, so that again tonight she had the feeling that she had once had today, already, of peace, of rest, of such moments, she thought, the thing is made that endures. Yes, she assured William Banks, there's plenty for everybody. Andrew, she said, hold your plate lower or I shall spill it. The boeuf en dub was a perfect triumph. Here, she felt, putting the spoon down, where one could move or rest, could wait now. They were all helped, listening. Could then, like a hawk which lapses suddenly from its high station, flaunt and sink on laughter easily, resting her whole weight upon what the other end of the table her husband was saying about the square root of 1,253. That was the number, it seemed, on his watch. What did it all mean? To this day, she had no notion. A square root? What was that? Her sons knew. She leant on them, on cubes and square roots. That was what they were talking about now. On Voltaire and Madame de Stael. On the character of Napoleon. On the French system of land tenure. On Lord Rosebery. On Creevy's memoirs. She let it uphold her and sustain her, this admirable fabric of the masculine intelligence, which ran up and down, crossed this way and that, like iron girders, spanning the swaying fabric, upholding the world so that she could trust herself to it utterly, even shut her eyes or flicker them for a moment as a child staring up from its pillow winks at the myriad layers of the leaves of a tree. Then she woke up. It was still being fabricated. William Banks was praising the Waverley novels. He read one of them every six months, he said. And why should that make Charles Tansley angry? He rushed in, or thought Mrs. Ramsay because Prue would not be nice to him, and denounced the Waverley novels when he knew nothing about it. Nothing about it whatsoever, Mrs. Ramsay thought, observing him rather than listening to what he said. She could see how it was from his manner. He wanted to assert himself, and so it would always be with him till he got his professorship or married his wife and so need not always be saying, I, I, I. That was what his criticism of poor Sir Walter, or perhaps it was Jane Austen, amounted to. I, I, I. He was thinking of himself and the impression he was making, as she could tell by the sound of his voice and his emphasis and his uneasiness. Success would be good for him. At any rate, they were off again. Now she need not listen. It could not last, she knew, 
but at the moment her eyes were so clear that they seemed to go round the table, unveiling each of these people and their thoughts and their feelings without effort, like a light stealing underwater so that it ripples and the reeds in it and the minnows balancing themselves and the sudden silent trout are all lit up, hanging, trembling. So she saw them, she heard them, but whatever they said had also this quality, as if what they said was like the movement of a trout, when at the same time one can see the ripple and the gravel, something to the right, something to the left, and the whole is held together. For whereas in active life she would be netting and separating one thing from another, she would be saying she liked the Waverley novels or had not read them. She would be urging herself forward. Now she said nothing. For the moment, she hung, suspended. Ah, but how long do you think it'll last? said somebody. It was as if she had antennae trembling out from her, which, intercepting certain sentences, forced them upon her attention. This was one of them. She scented danger for her husband. A question like that would lead almost certainly to something being said which reminded him of his own failure. How long would he be read? He would think at once. William Banks, who was entirely free from all such vanity, laughed and said he attached no importance to changes in fashion. Who could tell what was going to last, in literature or indeed anything else? Let us enjoy what we do enjoy, he said. His integrity seemed to Mrs. Ramsay quite admirable. He never seemed for a moment to think how does this affect me? But then if you had the other temperament, which must have praise, which must have encouragement, naturally you began, and she knew that Mr. Ramsay was beginning to be uneasy, to want somebody to say, oh, but your work will last, Mr. Ramsay, or something like that. He showed his uneasiness quite clearly now by saying, with some irritation, that anyhow, Scott, or was it Shakespeare, would last him his lifetime. He said it irritably. Everybody, she thought, felt a little uncomfortable without knowing why. Then Minta Doyle, whose instinct was fine, said bluffly, absurdly, that she did not believe that anyone really enjoyed reading Shakespeare. Mr. Ramsay said grimly, but his mind was turned away again, that very few people liked it as much as they said they did. But, he added, there is considerable merit in some of the plays nevertheless, and Mrs. Ramsay saw that it would be all right for the moment anyhow. He would laugh at Minta, and she, Mrs. Ramsay, saw, realizing his extreme anxiety about himself, would in her own way see that he was taken care of and praise him somehow or other. 
she wished it was not necessary. Perhaps it was her fault that it was necessary. Anyhow, she was free now to listen to what Paul Rayleigh was trying to say about books one had read as a boy. They lasted, he said. He had read some of Tolstoy at school. There was one he always remembered, but he'd forgotten the name. Russian names were impossible, said Mrs. Ramsay. Vronsky, said Paul. He remembered that because he always thought it such a good name for a villain. Vronsky, said Mrs. Ramsay. Oh, Anna Karenina. But that did not take them very far. Books were not in their line. No, Charles Tansley would put them both right in a second about books. But it was all so mixed up with, am I saying the right thing? Am I making a good impression? That after all, one knew more about him than about Tolstoy. Whereas what Paul said was about the thing, simply, not himself, nothing else. Like all stupid people, he had a kind of modesty too, a consideration for what you were feeling, which once in a way at least, she found attractive. Now he was thinking not about himself or about Tolstoy, but whether she was cold, whether she felt a draft, whether she would like a pair. No, she said, she did not want a pair. Indeed, she'd been keeping guard over the dish of fruit without realising it, jealously hoping that nobody would touch it. Her eyes had been going in and out among the curves and shadows of the fruit, among the rich purples of the lowland grapes, then over the ridge of the shell, putting a yellow against a purple, a curved shape against a round without knowing why she did it, or why every time she did it, she felt more and more serene, until, oh, what a pity that they should do it, a hand reached out, took a pair, and spoiled the whole thing. In sympathy, she looked at Rose. She looked at Rose sitting between Jasper and Prue. How odd that one's child should do that. How odd to see them sitting there, in a row. Her children, Jasper, Rose, Prue, Andrew, almost silent, but with some joke of their own going on, she guessed from the twitching at their lips. It was something quite apart from everything else. Something they were hoarding up to laugh over in their own room. It was not about their father, she hoped. No, she thought not. What was it, she wondered. Sadly, rather, for it seemed to her that they would laugh when she was not there. There was all that hoarded behind those rather set, still, mask-like faces, for they did not join in easily. They were like watchers, surveyors, little raised or set apart from the grown-up people. But when she looked at Prue tonight, she saw that this was not quite true of her. She was just beginning, just moving, just descending. Chapter 
faintest light was on her face, as if the glow of Minta opposite. Some excitement, some anticipation of happiness was reflected in her, as if the sun of the love of men and women rose over the rim of the tablecloth. Without knowing what it was, she bent towards it and greeted it. She kept looking at Minta, shyly yet curiously, so that Mrs. Ramsay looked from one to the other and said, speaking to Prue in her own mind, You'll be as happy as she is one of these days. You'll be much happier, she added, because you are my daughter, she meant. Her own daughter must be happier than other people's daughters. But dinner was over. It was time to go. They were only playing with things on their plates. She would wait until they had done laughing at some story her husband was telling. He was having a joke with Minta about a bet. Then she would get up. She liked Charles Tansley, she thought suddenly. She liked his laugh. She liked him for being so angry with Paul and Minta. She liked his awkwardness. There was a lot in that young man after all. And Lily, she thought, putting her napkin beside her plate. She always has some joke of her own. One need never bother about Lily. She waited. She tucked her napkin under the edge of her plate. Well, were they done now? No, that story had led to another story. Her husband was in great spirits tonight, and wishing, she supposed, to make it all right with old Augustus after that scene about the soup had drawn him in. They were telling stories about someone they had both known at college. She looked at the window in which the candle flames burnt, brighter now that the panes were black, and looking at that outside, the voices came to her very strangely as if they were voices at a service in a cathedral. She did not listen to the words. Sudden bursts of laughter, and then one voice, Minters, speaking alone, reminded her of men and boys crying out the Latin words of some service in some Roman Catholic cathedral. She waited. Her husband spoke. He was repeating something, and she knew it was poetry from the rhythm and the ring of exultation and melancholy in his voice. Come out and climb the garden path, Loriana, Lorelie. The china rose is all abloom and buzzing with the yellow bee. The words, she was looking at the window sounded as if they were floating like flowers on the water out there, cut off from them all, as if no one had said them, but they had come into existence of themselves. And all the lives we ever lived and all the lives to be are full of trees and changing leaves. She did not know what they meant, but like music, the words seemed to be spoken by her own voice, outside herself, 
saying quite easily and naturally what had been in her mind the whole evening while she said different things. She knew without looking round that everyone at the table was listening to the voice saying, I wonder if it seems to you, Luriana, Lurali. The same sort of relief and pleasure that she had, as if this were at last the natural thing to say, this were their own voice speaking. But the voice had stopped. She looked round. She made herself get up. Augustus Carmichael had risen and, holding his table napkin so that it looked like a long white robe, he stood chanting, To see the kings go riding by over lawn and daisy lee with their palm leaves and cedar Loriana Laurelie. And as she passed him, he turned slightly towards her, repeating the last words, Loriana Lurili, and bowed to her as if he did her homage. Without knowing why, she felt that he liked her better than he had ever done before, and with a feeling of relief and gratitude, she returned his bow and passed through the door which she held open for her. It was necessary now to carry everything a step further. With her foot on the threshold, she waited a moment longer in a scene which was vanishing even as she looked. And then as she moved and took Minta's arm and left the room, it changed, it shaped itself differently. It had become, she knew, giving one last look at it over her shoulder, already the past.